Does anybody else have anything? Let's kneel together then and let's let's have a word of prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. We we come before you again, Father, thanking you and praising you for your mercy towards us and your love and care for us and for your forgiveness. We are so thick-headed and uh, too often think we know what's best for us. The Lord, help us to change. Change our hearts and minds and write your laws as you've promised within us. We ask forgiveness, Lord, and, and we need help, desperate help. We can't do these things on our own. We need your grace. And we pray for grace to be healed of our, our spiritual issues and problems so that we can have true mental and physical healing. And Father, we lift up before you those on our prayer lists. Our children are ill this morning. We ask humbly, Lord, that you be very near to them. Uh, Robin is ill. There are a number of people who are suffering at this time. Help us to learn how to better take care of our, ourselves and, and heal us, Lord. We need spiritual healing and, and physical healing. Lord, we pray for our group in Battle Creek as we come together in, in unity. Help us to get better organized so that, that we can evangelize that area. Uh, we're being persecuted, Lord, uh, by the, the General Conference, and we pray for those people. We pray that their eyes may be opened and that they may uh, see the light and see that we aren't their enemy. Uh, but that Satan is. Lord, we pray for all our youth, our children, our grandchildren, as Jeanette has brought to our attention. Let us never stop praying and asking for your blessings upon our children. For they, if changed by your Holy Spirit, will finish this work. Father, we we have such division in our families and and uh, we pray for unity. We pray that we may reach um, these dear people, these dear souls, uh, to see and look up to Jesus. We know that you can solve many problems that we don't have a clue about. And we pray, Lord, for the leaders of this nation. We pray for the leaders in the church that they may keep their eyes stayed upon Thee and be an example to those around and a, more of a servant and hold up their responsibility to be more of a servant to the flock and prepare us for what's to come, Lord. We don't want our house to be left unto us desolate. So, Lord, please fill us with your Spirit. Send angels to be with each and every one and guide and direct us. And, Lord, I humbly ask that you give me the words to speak this morning. May they be your words. May they touch hearts with the truth. And may we gain the blessing that you've promised and share this truth with those around. We pray in the precious name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen. it is a real blessing and um, 
an encouragement to discover a being of such magnificent awe and love that you can wholeheartedly trust. Would you agree with that? All too often people put their trust in things that aren't so trustworthy. This is one of the most common, I guess, experiences uh, for humans um, and also one of our greatest disappointments. Some put their complete trust in government. Um, Some in a church. (laughs) Uh, The military. Some people put their full trust in the military. Maybe the court system. Some trust everything they read on the internet. And I would counsel you not to do that. Many trust only in the abilities of their own mind. And these are the ones that are the hardest to share the Scriptures with especially Bible prophecy. We've got a... We have our guests coming in. Good morning. Come on in. Find a seat here. We're just starting. Good morning. Good. Happy Sabbath. Happy Holy Sabbath. Just starting... A message here this morning. It's good to see you. You want to take your coats off or anything? Go ahead. Feel free. We also broadcast on the internet, so that's why the cameras are on. And I'll be back here when I'm the computer. Okay. Usually my sons do it, but... Yeah, we have... Uh, our children are upstairs. They're ill. So... Uh, and our nephew, he's he's well. He's back there. And so... Huh? I think so. I think so. It's back there in the back. Yeah, there's there's stuff back there. Deb can help you with that too. Uh, I look forward to meeting with you here and after the the message here. Do you got your Bibles? Good. When you come to church, you need to have your Bibles. Amen. Uh, the the title I gave this message is Left Unto You Desolate. Something that Jesus said to uh, the leaders there at Jerusalem. And I began by I guess explaining the sentiments of my heart. It is such an incredible encouragement and relief maybe to find a being, find someone who is entirely trustworthy. And um, very often we we tend to, sad to say, trust in things that really aren't trustworthy. Um, and that's very common. We see it all of the time. It, it, it's Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's a great disappointment. You'll trust in something and when you find out it isn't trustworthy, it can be very devastating. Um some people trust, as I was saying, some people trust in the government, some trust in a church or military or, or uh, maybe the, uh, uh, um, uh, a bank, maybe whatever it may be. Some trust in the abilities of their mind above everything else. 
And these are the people that are the hardest, I believe, at least in my experience, to share the scriptures with, and especially Bible prophecy. Most human beings have a seemingly insatiable desire to know what is going to happen in the future. Does anybody want to know what's going to happen in the future? I mean, most people do. They want to know what's going to happen in the future. The sales, for example, of grocery store tabloids that deal with predictions, they usually sell out as soon as they hit the shelves. That indicates that there's a desire uh, that people have to know future events, even though those aren't really accurate, are they? The interesting thing is that uh, the story of the future has been with us for hundreds of years. It really has. It's revealed to us in God's holy book. The God of the Bible gives a challenge to us. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 45. God gives a challenge to us in Isaiah, or He challenges. There's a challenge found in chapters 45, 46, and I encourage you to read all those. We're not going to read those completely. He challenges those who are worshiping all other gods to prove their case. This is what He's doing. I want you to prove your case. He asks, Who among you can tell the future? Who can tell the end from the beginning? You know, surely their gods can do this if they are gods, right? Isaiah chapter 45. I want to read verses 20 to 22 in Isaiah chapter 45. says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped to the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? He's asking a question. Who's declared this? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. In the Bible, we find accurate prophecies from ancient times to the present age, as well as things that have not yet happened. It has been proven over and over again in the fulfillment of history. If we look back at history, we see it in the fulfillment of history that it is the Creator God, as revealed in the Bible, that knows the end from the beginning. All that He has predicted so far has come to pass. 100% accuracy rating. 100%. If it wasn't 100%, what would that tell us about this God of the Bible? Wouldn't that show that He's not trustworthy? And most all people are initially drawn to that ability to know what is going to happen before it does. I'll be talking to people and I'll I'll show them a particular prophecy and show in history where it was fulfilled and they are astonished. They never knew that. And it grabs their attention. Just like that tabloid there in the grocery store line. It grabs their attention. 
and hopefully more than just for a little while. People want to know what's going to happen before it does. And the disciples at the time of Christ were no different. And they asked Jesus about the future. A few days before Jesus was crucified, Jesus left the Jewish temple in Jerusalem for the last time. If we turn to Matthew chapter 23, we read about this. He had just denounced the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders and of the nation as a whole, really. And as he was leaving, he made this pronouncement. And it was our scripture reading for this morning. It's Matthew 23 and verse 38. You read there, he goes through all, you know, giving the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And he comes down to this, verse 38, and he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's left unto you desolate. What does desolate mean? Empty, right? It's empty. Jesus had left the temple and then He pronounces it's left desolate. It's left empty. Now this wasn't any arbitrary type of decree because God is not arbitrary. Jesus had explained why it was left desolate. In the previous verse, back up to verse 37, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He then said, look at verse 39, he says, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hmm. Now, of course, he was referring... Uh, to what they will say at the resurrection day. He then walked out of the temple. And with his disciples, he went out of the city, went up into the Mount of Olives, and they sat down overlooking the temple. Beautiful structure. If you go to the next verse, it's Matthew 24 and verse 1. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him, for to show him the buildings of the temple. In other words, they're saying, look at this temple. (laughs) Look at the magnificence of this temple. Now, the temple that they saw was not the original that was built by Solomon. If you remember, there were great stores of material that had been gathered by King David for the first temple and, and built according to the plans that had been given to him Uh, by God. However, David wasn't allowed to build the temple. He just got all the materials together. He was given the plans, but God didn't allow him to build it. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. But it was David's son, Solomon, who was declared to be the wisest of all the kings of Israel and the wisest man of the world, really. He's the one who completed that task. Now the building itself was reputed to have been the most magnificent building in the entire world. More beautiful than anything anyone had ever seen. However, because of the apostasy of the Jewish people, a continued apostasy, God allowed that building to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 
king of Babylon. About 500 years before Christ, before He was born, the Jews returning from captivity from Babylon to a land that they had had largely been desolated during their absence, they rebuilt the temple. And it was this second temple that they were looking at. It wasn't nearly as magnificent as the first temple. And when the people, the Bible tells us in Ezra 3, when the people, the, the old men who had seen the first temple came back and they saw it, they wept with loud voice when the foundation of that second temple was being laid. They wept. From a Review and Herald article, December 12th, she says, The outward glory of the temple was not the glory of the Lord. It's not the outward, is it? She says, Instruction was given as to what constituted the blessing that was to rest upon the temple. Its restoration in a plainer style than that of the first temple was to place before the people in a proper light their past error in depending upon the pomp and splendor of outward form and ceremony. They didn't learn the lesson, did they? They didn't learn the lesson. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, describing the second temple, it says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Isn't that interesting? Didn't we just read that the outside it wasn't? But here we're reading in Haggai that the glory of this latter house, the second one, shall be greater than of the former. Saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. I found that rather interesting as I was studying. Here you had the first temple, magnificent building. But because of apostasy, because they sinned against the Lord continually and continually and continually, the only way actually the Lord could reach His people was to give them up to captivity. And then that's what he did. Nebuchadnezzar came in, took him captive. Remember this, all the stories of Daniel? Daniel grew up most of his life in captivity. But then there was a return. The land was desolated. The temple was destroyed. They built this second one. It wasn't, as she says, as, how does she put it? The outward glory. It was a plainer style of temple. But we read here in Haggai 2 and verse 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Look at uh, verses 6 and 7 because he explains how that was going to happen. In Haggai 2 verse 6 7, he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Though the second temple didn't have the visible tokens of the, of the glory of, of God like the first one did, it, it was honored and was more highly exalted because in the second temple, 
as we read there in Haggai, it says, there came the desire of all nations. And I thought, the desire of ages. Who's being spoken of? The man of Nazareth taught and healed in its sacred enclosure. The presence of the Messiah made it more glorious than the first temple. But Israel had put from her God's gift. And that day, when the humble teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, had passed out from the temple for the last time, He said, Your house is left unto you desolate. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Now, the disciples, they were filled with astonishment. When they heard Christ speaking these words, I mean, they were astonished. And as he was going out of the temple, they tried to draw his attention to the, the wonderful architecture. All the expensive materials that had been used in, in building this temple. In Mark 13 and verse 1 it says that, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Look at this magnificent building. It's been here for hundreds of years. The temple walls were made of white marble. They were fitted together so tightly that it said that you could hardly see the joints. And from a distance, because of that, you know, from a distance, it was a beautiful sight and it looked like one solid white piece of marble. And that marble had been carved out. And so the temp, you know, the disciples were attempting to draw his attention to this mar- marvelous building. Look at this. How th- this is the presence of God. <laughs> In verse two, Jesus responded. He says, "Seest thou these great buildings?" there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. The first time when He said, your house is left unto you desolate, they were astonished. But to hear these words, they were stunned with disbelief. They knew about the first temple, what had happened. For centuries, you see, the Jews had been taught that the temple itself, the building, the organization itself was God in Israel. But they misunderstood the Scriptures, didn't they? They misunderstood, for example, Exodus 25.8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. They misunderstood Psalm 77.13, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? In fact, God had sent prophets to try to correct their misunderstanding. God sent Jeremiah in an effort to do this. In Jeremiah 7 verse 4, it says, Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. 
Review and Herald article entitled Established in the Faith, April 2, 1908, says the Jews flattered themselves that in spite of departure from Him, the Lord would protect from injury their temple and those who worshipped in it. Despite their departure from Him. That's key. You see, because it's we who have the choice to either follow God or reject Him. God always strives with our hearts. And here she says, in spite of their departure from Him, the Lord would protect from injury their temple. The Philistines, that's what they believed. They had these false gods and nothing would destroy these idols. Well, we know what happened to Dagon, don't we? The presence of God. She says, they put their trust in outward advantages and overlooked the necessity get this, of purity of character, which alone God could bless. Purity of character. So the disciples thought if if Jerusalem would be overthrown, this is their thinking, this is how they got away from the Scriptures. They thought if Jerusalem would be overthrown, Jesus has got to be talking about the events associated with His personal coming back. And not just the advent that we know and understand, You've got to put yourself in their mind. Their thought was that He's going to come back. He's going to, to have temporal glory. He's going to take the throne of, of the universe, set down in the seat of David. He's going to punish the impenitent Jews and He's going to break the Roman yoke. That's what their thinking was. Because you see, Jesus had told them He's going to come back a second time. So when he mentioned the judgments that were going to come upon Jerusalem, their minds, well, they were thinking about that. And then to hear him say, not one stone will be left upon another, they're stunned. Where's the throne that he's going to sit on if the temple's destroyed? Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Verse 3. It says, And as He sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto Him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? fortunate really you think about that in their situation and their their faith at the moment in mercy the future was veiled from them I believe if they'd known that in just a few more days Jesus would be tried scourged and crucified and also the most of them within their own lifetime And that Jerusalem and the temple would be totally destroyed with not one stone left upon another, they would have been filled with terror and horror. I don't think they would have been able to think logically. And that's the mercy of God. There are things that we don't know and we will not know because we walk by faith 
And God knows our faith. He knows what He can share and what He needs to veil. We're told that we don't know a tenth of what's going on behind the scenes in this battle between Christ and Satan. And that's for a reason. I think they would have been overwhelmed. So Jesus simply presented to them an outline of the the prominent events that were to take place before the destruction of Jerusalem and, and actually before the close of time. The prophecy he uttered had a twofold meaning, you see. Firstly, it had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but it also had to do with the, the, uh, the persecutions, the terrors of the last days. So, Jesus declared to His disciples the judgments that were going to fall upon apostate Israel, and especially the vengeance that would come upon them for their rejection and uh, for them crucifying the Messiah. And before this dreaded hour would come, there would be unmistakable signs that would precede that climax, wouldn't there? If you drop down to verse 15 in Matthew 24, this is very familiar to Adventists, isn't it? Jesus says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. He says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. Well, there are a lot of people who read it and don't understand. You see, because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It takes a little bit more than reading, doesn't it? It takes study. The Holy Spirit will open our eyes if if we allow Him to. But Luke records this, the same thing in literal terms, in a little bit more graphic language. If you turn to Luke 21, keep your finger in Matthew 24. We may come back to that. But in Luke 21, He uses a little bit more graphic language. Verse 20, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies... Then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. A little bit more information there, isn't there? Verse 21, Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. So in other words, when they would see the idolatrous standards of the Roman armies set up on holy ground around Jerusalem, what were they to do? That was a sign, wasn't it, that Jesus said. Now, there were a number of other signs, but this was a huge sign. This is, when you're under a siege, it looks like you're stuck. <laughs> you're trapped, right? And here Jesus, He's saying, when you see it surrounded, flee. Well, how do you flee when it's surrounded? I mean, surely Jesus is telling them this, and you've got to imagine the disciples are thinking, well, when the Roman army surround Jerusalem, how are we going to flee, Lord? Jesus never said how, did He? He didn't explain how it would happen. He just gave them instructions what they were to do when they saw this sign. He told them that they were not even to take time to return home to get clothes. But when they had the opportunity, they were to immediately flee. 
At the time that Jesus spoke these words, the city of Jerusalem was a highly fortified city. Did you know that? And any person who publicly was predicting these things, that uh, you know Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be uh, knocked down, um, they would have been regarded probably like Noah was, I would imagine. Building a boat and it never rained. They would have been considered a crazed alarmist, out of their mind. If you look at verse 35 in Matthew 24, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So Jesus here, He's laying out someone that is trustworthy, isn't He? The disciples were with Jesus for how long? Three and a half years? They loved Jesus, didn't they? It's hard to love someone that you don't trust. Isn't it? Isn't it hard to love someone you don't trust? They loved Jesus. They trusted Him. They knew that, for one thing, they knew that everything He said happened. Did they ever catch Jesus in a lie? No, because Jesus never lied. He was trustworthy. And here he's emphasizing it again. Heaven and earth shall pass away. They're thinking that's the end of the world if Jerusalem's destroyed and the temple's destroyed. And Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall not pass away. And because of her sins, wrath had been denounced against Jerusalem and her stubborn unbelief made her doom certain. And this is exactly what the Lord predicted was going to happen in Jerusalem through the prophet Micah hundreds of years before it happened. Micah chapter 3. Verse 9. we begin there. Micah 3, verse 9, Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. (laughs) I would think that would probably get your attention, wouldn't it? (laughs) They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Notice that these people who are living in wickedness say, We are God's people. We're God's people. We're going through no matter what. You catch the attitude? The understanding? Doesn't matter what we do. Doesn't matter what evil we do. We were the chosen of God. We're going through. Is that really what God says? There are people today who say they are Christians and that no harm can come to them, yet they're not living a Christ-like life. In fact, 
If you don't live a Christ-like life, what life are you living? You're living one that's directly contrary to the life of Christ. Jesus said to the people in Luke 6, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Because they were living like the devil while claiming to be God's own people, their outcome was predicted. There is no grand exception, friends. Because God works on principles. He always has, always will. Micah 3 and verse 12. Next verse. says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Whoa. I bet they really like to hear that. This prophecy described, you see, the condition of the Jewish nation in the time of Christ. Although they were proud of their self-righteousness, they were living in sin. They were transgressing the principles of the law of God. They hated Christ because of His purity. His holiness, His holy life, the way He lived, was a rebuke, a constant rebuke to the way that they were living. And they accused Jesus of being the cause of their troubles. You know, they knew that He was sinless. They knew it. Jesus said in John 8, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He's saying, you can't produce any evidence that I've sinned. That should be enough for you to believe what I'm saying. But it wasn't, was it? They had no answer. But they condemned Him to death. Because they said His death was necessary for the security of the nation. Wow. You know, that will be repeated. In fact, it has been repeated throughout history. And it will be repeated again before Jesus comes. We need to kill this sect to save the world. That's what will be said. These Sabbath keepers need to be destroyed in order to please God and save our world. John chapter 11. This is what they did. Verse 48. If we let Him thus alone, speaking of Jesus, if we let Him alone, this is what they're saying, all men will believe on Him. Why would they say that? Because they knew He was a man of God. If we let Him thus alone, all men will believe on Him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. They actually believed that their own words. He's going he's to take the throne. And there's going to be a battle. And He's going to lose. And Rome's going to take over. 
We're going to lose our nation. Is that what he's saying? We're going to lose both our place as leaders to the people, lose all our wealth, lose our power, and our nation. Verse 49, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. So Caiaphas is saying, all we got to do is kill him. We kill this one man and everything's okay. Boy, was he wrong. But just as Micah had predicted, they built up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. And yet, even though they had killed their Savior, who reproved their sins because of their self-righteousness, they still claimed to be the people of God. His favored people and expected the Lord to deliver them from their enemies. He sins. He pours out all heaven in Jesus to save mankind. They kill Him and still think they're the people of God. And this same thing has happened many times through earth's history. In fact, it's still happening today. Many people claim that they are God's people but refuse to follow His instructions. They make a profession without reflecting His character. They don't walk as He walked, do they? Or live as He lived. They prove by their actions that they have no faith is what they do. So for nearly 40 years after 31 AD, when Jesus predicted this destruction, the judgments against Jerusalem were delayed. You know, God is wonderfully long-suffering. Wonderfully so. The murderers of His Son were given almost 40 years to consider the evidence and see the development of the Christian church and what was happening in the world. For two generations, the fathers, mothers, and children had opportunity to evaluate the character of Christ through His disciples and His followers. But when the time came that the children also rejected not only the light that their parents had, but also additional light that they themselves had received, then the cup of their iniquity was full. The long-suffering of God toward Jerusalem just confirmed the Jews in their stubborn impenitence. And eventually God gave them up to their own selves. When God sees, friends, that no matter what evidence He gives a person, they still refuse to submit, there is no way they can be saved. He finally gives up and leaves them over to their own control, their own passions. The Holy Spirit ceases to plead because they've committed the unpardonable sin. They follow a different spirit. Let's not be that way. In their hatred toward the disciples of Jesus, the Jews rejected God's last offer of mercy to His once chosen people. 
his protection was removed and also his restraining power upon Satan and, and his angels who came to totally control Israel. There now was no safety anywhere. Friends and family betrayed one another with uncontrolled passions. People became tyrants. False accusations made their lives uncertain. They had said, as it says in Isaiah, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. And they didn't know what they were asking for. And now their desire was granted. The fear of God no longer disturbed them. Satan was at the head of the nation. The highest civil and religious authorities were under his control, under his sway. All kinds of awful things happened, but the leaders still said, This city cannot be destroyed. It is God's own city. We're not afraid that this city will be destroyed. God won't ever let it happen. We are the grand exception. So the multitudes believed. Right to the last. They believed that the Most High was going to deliver them from their adversaries. But they had spurned God's protection. And now they had no defense. They were tore up by internal dissensions. Their children were slain by someone else's hands for food. All the predictions that Jesus gave concerning Jerusalem were fulfilled right to the letter. They learned the truth of His words. As you measure to somebody else, it will be measured to you again. You know, there were many signs that occurred before the destruction of Jerusalem showing that something awful was going to take place. One of the most interesting fulfillments of prophecy when you look at that historical event is that not one Christian perished in the city. Not one. Jesus had given His disciples warning and everyone who listened to the warning was saved. Every one of them. In Luke 21, I want to read verse 20-22 again. It speaks about that. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. Verse 22. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Jesus had said, Your house is left unto you desolate. They rejected everything else He had said. Why not this? From the Great Controversy, page 30. We'll read about this. In fact, first chapter in the Great Controversy deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. Page 30 says, The besieged 
despairing of successful resistance, were on the point of surrender when the Roman general withdrew his forces without the least apparent reason. But God's merciful providence was directing events for the good of his own people. The promised sign had been given to the waiting Christians, and now an opportunity was afforded for all who would all who would to obey the Savior's warning. Events were so overruled that neither Jews nor Romans should hinder the flight of the Christians. Upon the retreat of Cestius, the Jews, sallying from Jerusalem, pursued after his retiring army, and while both forces were thus fully engaged, the Christians had an opportunity to leave the city. At this time, the country also had been cleared of enemies who might have endeavored to intercept them. At the time of the siege, the Jews were assembled at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and thus the Christians throughout the land were able to make their escape unmolested. All the Jews were in Jerusalem. Most all of them. She says, Without delay, they fled to a place of safety, the city of Pella, in the land of Perea, beyond Jordan. You know, when I was studying this and reading this, I always found it interesting that Jesus gave a command that would seem impossible to be fulfilled. And yet the opportunity to escape was there, just as He told them. And all who listened and obeyed the command of Jesus were saved. Not one perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. They fled without delay to a place of safety beyond Jordan. Beloved, what an awesome God we serve. What an awesome God. I would encourage you to read Matthew 24 very carefully. The destruction of Jerusalem was used by Jesus as a symbol of what will happen to the entire world at the end of time. Those who reject the authority of God. Those who reject His law those who reject the gospel of Christ. If you are willing to listen to the instructions that Jesus gives in His Word, then at the end of the world, you're not going to be among the nations that mourn because they then realize they've been worshiping the Antichrist and not the true Christ. You can be saved today right now you don't have to be destroyed in the the destruction that's coming in fact a temple that houses the Holy Spirit will never be destroyed who sits on the throne of your heart who is it that dwells in your body temple You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Beloved, do not harden your hearts against the Lord. Do not drive the Holy Spirit away from your temple. But accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Don't drive Him away. 
You see, all that He has spoken has come to pass. Jesus said, as He closed, was closing up Matthew 24, He said, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Mm-hmm. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Jesus is coming. And the signs of the times tell us, beloved, that He's coming in our lifetime. Will He find your temple desolate? I hope He doesn't find mine desolate. And I pray that He doesn't find yours desolate either. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Your holy word that we can trust it. We can trust Your Word. You've proven over and over and over again that You love us, that You have our best interest at heart, always. Father, too often we turn our eyes away from You. Now we ask forgiveness. We see Jesus, who was given for our salvation. We see that He lived a life of righteousness to show us how to live. We see our character lined up against His. And we are are guilty. Father, we pray, as we claim the blood that Jesus shed at Calvary, that You will forgive us our sins. Fill our hearts and minds with the Holy Spirit. Write Your laws upon us. Give us the grace that we need never to sin again. Help us to keep looking up and prepare ourselves and others for for the soon coming of Jesus. Lord, please continue to bless us this Sabbath day that we may get a taste of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.